everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Make Your Stuff. I'm your host, Kyle F. Andrews, and I am so excited to have you today, and ideally every Thursday hereafter. Uh, this show is a show about how creatives like you, or maybe someone you know, can take your career into your own hands. I've got a number of successful but still up-and-coming guests for you to hear and ideally learn a thing or two from. My first guest is Emmy-nominated Canadian writer, director, and actor Sonia O'Hara. Sonia is best known for writing, directing, and starring in the critically acclaimed series Doomsday, which won Best Series at ITV Fest, and Sonia herself was presented the Best Director Award at the New York Television Festival. Her film Ovum, which she also wrote, produced, and starred in, won Best Picture at the Big Apple Film Festival, and her film Anatomy of an Orchid premiered at the Holly Shorts Film Festival in Los Angeles. Her next film, a feature called Mid-Century, a social commentary horror thriller starring Bruce Dern, Stephen Lang, and Shane West, recently wrapped production, and I honestly cannot wait to see it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sonia. Sonia, I am so excited you were able to come on with me today. Um, I've been looking forward to interviewing you for a while uh, because um, out of anybody I know who's made their stuff, you have made your stuff. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. It's been really inspiring to watch you um, kind of grow into your own. And tell me what it's like being an overnight success. Uh, that's such a funny one because I feel like I've been doing this for a million years, you know, that the adage of, you know, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And I feel like it's taken a lot longer. I mean, I moved to, to this country at 17 to go to acting school in New York, but I've been acting since I was a kid and this is all sort of, I'd ever wanted. So it's cool now being able to like make a living doing this, but it's been like a long time coming. Yeah, I, I'm really excited for you because I have always known you as this amazing actress. And then just kind of being in the, you know, social media hubbub of who you are and actually watching you grow into an award-winning director, producer, writer who, you know, you've made a TV show and nobody has made a TV show on their own. Uh, Thank what you. Was, what was that like, by the way, just like coming up with a TV show idea and then putting it out there to be produced? It was such a weird thing because it came sort of accidentally. Like I had made a micro budget feature when I was about 25 and I thought that was going to be the thing that sort of launched me, to be honest. And it ended up going to some cool festivals, but it didn't get into one of those like top five festivals that sort of like put you on the map. Mm -hmm. So I made this micro budget feature. It did okay. Like it got some awards and it got some attention. And that was, got, that was Ovum, right? That was Ovum. And it got picked up by this like streaming platform called Tribeca Shortlist. And it had a life, but when I was done that, it was the first thing that I had written and produced. I didn't direct that one, but I was acting in it. And by the time that was done, I was so depleted from having made something. Like I never made a short before I made a feature. I just sort of jumped in really aggressively. Oh, wow. So by the time it was done, I had it was as if I had gone to film school through just the making of it. And every step, it was like, I almost didn't know what the next giant hurdle would be. So I was able to sort of like keep my cool and be like, okay, well, we have one more thing. And then, you know, you really, it's a million more things. But when I was done that, I thought to myself, there were so many cool actors in that film that I felt like I sort of had this collective or theater troupe that I wanted to put in something else. And I was like, what if I just make something really small for less money where I'm just able to work with my friends 
And I started to actually look for scripts for that. And I found a script that I loved that I was all set to go and produce, but she was a writer that was repped at ICM at the time. And I was having to go through so much red tape to try to acquire this script, even though it like that girl was yet to have a major career or sell a show. And like, I just wanted to do this thing. And it ended up being that it was just so much work that I decided to scrap it, but I didn't want to let down all the artists that were already attached. So I wrote it an hour long TV pilot and sort of a short amount of time went to the Catskills to go and shoot it, use like pre, I wrote it for the talent that was like attached to the other project. And then when that show ended up getting into these major festivals, it sort of blew my mind because it wasn't the plan. It was supposed to be the movie. It was never supposed to be the TV show. And then that just went on this like insane trajectory. And the next thing I knew, I was speaking on a panel at South by Southwest about indie TV, along with like the creators of Wild Wild Country. And it was just very surreal. And then, yeah. That sounds pretty surreal. I mean, just the fact that you were able to put your old... Uh, school kind of theater training into how you maintain the collaboration, but then made the collaboration about creating a a, a piece of visual art. Um, When you were getting into that, did you, so did you always want to be a producer or was that something that happened when you came out to Los Angeles? Yes. I I did not always want to be a producer. I, when I was younger, like my motto was like act or die. And I literally (laughs) only wanted to act. It came much later out of sort of the necessity of finding really one dimensional, terrible acting roles and like running around in bikinis and awful like horror movies Mm -hmm. and just deciding that I never wanted to do that again. And I always had seen, you know, like the Ben Afflecks and the Matt Damons. And even Naomi Watts had a movie that was about an actress living in her car that she had made on a shoestring budget. So the plan had always been for me to write and star in a project that would be a launching pad for more acting things. And then in the process of doing that, I fell in love with filmmaking and like that it was this one creative thing where I could combine all of my interests. Like I grew up painting and drawing and making little models. And suddenly I was able to like, do production design and like art design my own stuff and set deck. And it was like all of the weird creative stuff combined into one thing. I was like, this satisfies so many parts of me that acting, you know, alone doesn't do. Mm. And then I just kept on making stuff. And I think one thing I'm good at that got me sort of into the producing side is I'm so enthusiastic that I can pitch people to agree to do things or to give me resources because I'm like excited for them to be part of it. And I'm like, look, you deserve way more money than what at that point I was able to pay them. But I was like, you know, I will, I'm a loyal human. I will hire you for the next project when I have real money. And at that point I was probably really delusional because I didn't know there would be a next product project, but then there was, and like, I was able to take my poor DP who was doing all these micro budget things off to Louisiana to do a movie based off of an adaptation of a video game that I was directing. And he's like, this is a real project with real money and a real crew. And I was like, yeah, we're graduating, you know? Wow. That, you know, it reminds me of the old maxim, jump and the net will appear. It, yes. it, it kind of sounds like you've, your trajectory has been a lot of planning and then from that planning, allowing whatever happens to happen. Yes. And having faith and then just sort of realizing that it may not work out exactly how I wanted, but I would find a way to be able to make my living doing this. And then 
you know, just being willing, just being obsessed and relentless, you know? Well, I'm excited that, you know, that whole actor die thing. <laughs> so, you know, you, you went to school in New York. I went to school in Boston. Yeah, it is yeah. a very East Coast, like actor die. Um, so it yeah. And in, in LA, you know, it's, it's more like, you know, we're making some stuff, man. Although certainly there, there's definitely the, um, the, the uh, make it or break it kind of mentality, I think in, in a different way. There is, but it's more about making it, I think in a way that others perceive as success, as opposed to like, for me, I felt like if I wasn't going to act every single day and getting to play my like dream list of theater roles that like my soul would atrophy. Like I was such like an intense, you know, young person. Well, let's talk about that for a second, yeah. because I think one of the things that uh, artists, as they're breaking into mm -hmm. an industry like this, uh, kind of um, put to the side their mental health so yeah. that they can focus on making sure that the career is going or I'm really getting where I got to go. How yeah. do you preserve your mental health in, in a situation like this? Oh, God, I think for a long time, I didn't think about my mental health and I didn't really care. I had this idea that like struggling and sacrificing everything for art was noble and that there was sort of like an ethos that being broke was almost like glamorized because that meant like you were giving everything to your work. And then at some point, I think it was partly the LA lifestyle of wait, you can like live in a place where you can afford an apartment that isn't a shoebox in New York. Like you can hike, you can go to the beach, mm -hmm. you can enjoy your life and do things. Then that in no way takes away from, you know, your quest as an artist. Like you can have a good time while doing it like that. Eventually, it's crazy. It's crazy. But I didn't have, you know, the time or money to do that when I was like in my early 20s, because I was on an artist visa from Canada, that meant that I wasn't allowed to accept or work in any job that was outside of the entertainment industry. And I think that sort of forced me to find ways to get jobs that fell under the entertainment umbrella, or I wasn't like legally allowed to do them. Like I couldn't have restaurant jobs at that point. So I was like, okay. I'm going to find an improv job working at like a weird tourist restaurant because that falls under like your equity card jurisdiction. So you'd like find ways to work and it made me, it made things work. But back to the mental health thing, I, it wasn't until now in my early thirties that I started to like think about therapy and I started to run and I started to be interested in meditation. But those were things that if you talked to me about in my early twenties, I would have rolled my eyes and thought were completely like woo woo and unnecessary and like, you know, taking time away from like the work or something. Sure. Sure. Well, I was, I was very lucky, you know, in, in my acting uh, conservatory work, uh, it was one of the first tools they gave me was yoga. And I, I was, I was fortunate in that way. I think much of the acting method I've kind of left in the past, but I've kept that yoga infatuation to, to yeah, keep me going. Yeah, we did some yoga at Marymount Manhattan and that was great. And I remember that at the time, like, and it's so ridiculous now because I do yoga all the time. But at the time I was like, treated it like I still had this like young attitude and I treated it like I need to learn this dance choreography and I need to know these like positions and was like stressing myself out and not getting any of like the relaxation side of yoga. And I was like, wow, that's really missing the point. Well, now you've sort of kind of added four times the amount of work to yourself though, uh, being a producer and a writer and director. So, so where in that, you know, I know you just turned in a project. I, I can't speak too, too much about it, but it's really exciting um, that it's done. And I know how stressful it was for you. So how, how in that process did you find the balance for yourself to make sure you were getting it in, making people happy, but also taking care of yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, this was my first film that I made on an indie basis that ended up being picked up by a studio, right? And I can say that. And I think like when for that project, I didn't have to, I didn't write it and I didn't produce it, but I directed it and I acted in it, right? Mm. And for that, I had the beauty of, I think we shot for five weeks this time. And normally I'm getting to shoot for far less days, right? I think we had 26 days of shooting for this movie and we were able to schedule my like five days of acting to be the final week. So by then I had such a rapport with my crew. I knew them so well and I was able to trust my DP and others to have my back when I was acting. So I wasn't having to split my like head into two places. Like I wasn't even looking at my little monitor. I was trusting that like we had, you know, like we had done all of the, you know, storyboards and stuff beforehand. And I knew my shot list. I knew the coverage we needed to get, but I didn't have to like self-direct so much. I was able to just be with my scene partner. And that was beautiful. Like that was probably one of my more relaxing days on set for that movie because I got to have I got to sit in a makeup chair and if people pamper me and be kind to me and I wasn't like running around like a chi- with a chicken like a you know like a chicken with its head cut off the whole time like I was the rest of the shoot where you're just trying to get everything done and make your days and be stressed and for that movie I had a bunch of executive producers some of which I had never met watching the dailies remotely every night from somewhere in the world and giving notes Mm. And I wasn't able to be like, hey, I shot the scene this way because this is what I plan to do in the edit because I had no contact with these humans and they didn't know any of the context. So you'd get like weird notes and then you're stressing all night before you go to set the next day, you know? So yeah. it was definitely stressful, but, you know, I got to hire a couple people that had been in my past projects and actress who'd been in my Doomsday series was able to like come on day one and I knew she'd deliver because I knew her work. You know, and it's always hiring familiar people makes me have like an easier time on set. Like I see why people want to hire their friends, you know? Well, it, it's like, it goes back to what you said about building rapport. It, I, I find it so interesting that you save the acting to put at the end instead of trying to get it out of the way at the beginning. That sort of takes the, I, I think that there's a perception that if an actor is also directing something or producing something, that then this is going to be a vanity project for them. So. Yes. So it sounds like you were very proactive in not just doing what was best for the shoot, but also making sure that it was about the community that you were building to make the movie happen. And I was able to, I had a really wonderful assistant director on this project named Josh Long. And unlike every other AD I've worked with, he's often sort of like at odds with the creative team. He called me before we started shooting and said, how do you like to work? what can I do to make your life easier and the creative process better for you? And I said like, Hey, when I act in something, those are often the most stressful days. And he was the one who suggested like, let's protect you and make you feel great and move it to the end. And let's try not to have big company moves on those days. Like it was really, I felt like I was in good hands. A good first AD is worth a million dollars. Yeah, I know. And you never have that. I never have that. So I was really grateful to have somebody tremendous. That's, that's very, that's very cool. Well, let's, uh, let, let me ask you a question about, you know, cause uh, you're Canadian. I love Canadians. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I work with a lot of Canadians um, as an advocate and as a, as a consultant. And I'm actually, ideally, there are a few um, scripts that I'm, I'm hoping to produce down the line from Canadian writers. So I'm, I'm all, I'm drenched in maple syrup at this point. <laughs> um, what, aside from the acting and needing to make sure you were in the entertainment area what sorts of positives and i guess maybe lacking experiences have you had in the making something canada versus making something in the united states 
So I have to say now I finally became, I'm a dual citizen now, but it Mm -hmm. took me 10 years to go through like the visa process and all of that. But now I can say that one of the biggest things that my agents are able to sell about me is that I am, I'm able to work in Canada. And as a director, that makes it for the tax incentives so appealing to the, to Americans. Like they're like, like very excited when they're every time somebody finds out I'm Canadian, they're like, Ooh, we can shoot in like Toronto. Like we can do this. And it's been something that is a huge selling point, which I never thought of because when I grew up and went to school, you know, high school in Canada, there was definitely an idea that you're Canadian. You are limited in that you can go to Toronto, you can go to Vancouver, but you probably aren't going to have access to the American market. And I think that has all changed. And now I meet so many Canadians in LA, you know, I like more than ever, more than I think I knew in New York. And it's a really like tight knit community. Like people are very supportive of each other. There and seems to be a real LA Vancouver pipeline. Yes, there is for sure. I mean, actors, like they get their breaks, you know, doing the CW shows in Vancouver and then they come over to LA. And so many of my friends out here are doing shows in Vancouver. So yeah, for sure. That's very real. Mm, yeah. And in fact, I, I have, uh, I think three out of four Canadian writers that I work with are from Vancouver. So um, it, it just, it, it makes sense. Um, I'm also struck by the fact that there seems to be uh, so much artistic integrity in projects that are made by Canadian uh, creators, <laughs> created by creators, you know, that's real good English there. Um <laughs> Do you find that the, um, the needs of the American market are distinct from those of the Canadian market? Or is it like you just make what you make and wherever it lands, that's where it's going to be? I think that growing up, we had a real appreciation in Nova Scotia culturally for art and artistic films. Like Telefilm Canada and CBS were interested in fostering like Canadian film that were authentic stories told by you know, people like Atlantic Canadians. And that has sort of stuck with me that like the prestige projects out there were, were get like, were just, I don't know, like there was, they were really celebrated. And I remembered always thinking like the, the Montreal and Quebecois film scene was, I mean, that's like the Cannes Film Festival, you know, of, of, you know, for Canada. Like, it's like, that's where like the really cool art house movies are being made. And I don't know. I think that's definitely impacted my work like the through line and everything I do is normally about you know queer young women breaking out of patriarchal societies and finding their voice and like I grew up my idol was Elliot Page you know in who's a fellow Nova Scotian so I don't know I guess I've always just been really interested in subversive tales and a lot Mm. of Canadian filmmakers that I know are telling that kind of story and when I came out here I felt like a lot of my American colleagues were trying to make and sell films that they thought were commercially viable. And I've always thought someone's going to hire me to write a project because they want something that's so specifically my voice. So instead of trying to sound like everyone else, why wouldn't I want to make something that excites me? Because Mm. that's all I can offer, right? Like something that's so personal to me that at least at the end of the day, I want to be in love with my work. And if I make something to please everyone else, I may end up having something that no no one responds to. And I think that is a a key aspect of who you are as an artist that I am drawn to as somebody who admires other artists. It it is that you are, if I see a project that you're attached to and I see, you know, some of the uh, 
film from it. It's like, oh, this is clearly a Sonia O'Hara project. This is, I, I know what she looks like. It has a Sonia voice to it that I, I really dig. Um, so let me ask you about that because I think you are in a, I don't know if this is transition phase. I think all art is transitory. Um, but for you, you know, with, with Doomsday, which is the, the show we've been talking about, it was, you know, it won ITV Fest. It won New York Television Fest. It won the Webby Awards. It, yeah. it got noticed at Dances with Films and Austin Film Festival. It also got nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award. And mm -hmm. you yourself, you know, when we met, we were going for whatever agent would take us at, oh a, at, a, at yes. a showcase. And now you're repped by WME. So yeah. where do you find yourself? Are you still having that independent mindset or are you, you starting to think about how my voice can fit into the larger Hollywood um, uh, uh, environment? Both. So I think it's interesting. During when I signed with WME, I sat down with six agents at a glass conference table and they all like were writing notes and they brought people over from like Endeavor content and people were like pitching me ideas. And if I said something like, you know, they were like, what's a movie you could have made in the last couple of years? And I said, Annihilation by Alex Garland. Oof, I would and love to see a version of said, that. They, they were like, um, can you get Alex on an email team so we can get Sonia to be able to potentially like collaborate? Okay, great. Nice. We'll set that. And like, it was such a weird, surreal thing. And they kept on reminding me that I no longer needed to make indie projects. I no longer needed to like make anything that was sort of outside of the system. And I thought about that. And I had read the Duplass's interview about how they had signed with agents and moved to Hollywood, took a year of like water bottle tour meetings, and then nothing happened. And that was sort of a cautionary tale for me. So I am suddenly getting the meetings. I was like, you know, getting generals with all the studios and doing all of that. But at the same time, I kept on like, I would have the pitches and the decks ready to go for the bigger things I was going out for. But I was simultaneously writing the things like smaller projects that I knew that I could self-produce. And I'm really glad that I did because when the world shut down for the pandemic, I had a short ready to go that I was able to shoot like in an apartment over three days with like a skeleton crew. And a year later, that was the short that went to the Santa Barbara Film Festival and got into this major Oscar qualifying fest. And if I had waited all of the bigger films that I was attached to direct that year, they all got moved, right? Like those things didn't happen. Mm. So all I had at the end of the year were the things that I made. And then I decided to go back and make another micro budget episode of my Doomsday series. And that was the thing that ended up getting the daytime Emmy nomination. So I was like, I have to keep doing the tiny things in order to give my agents stuff that like the buzz and traction that they want to use in order to get me in for bigger projects. I'm the only one who's able to generate that stuff. So mm. I have to keep doing that or I'm going to get lost in the mix at a giant agency. So I've learned, I just have to keep that like indie hustle on my own or I can't compete with the A-list clients they have, right? Like I have to be like the young, hungry, scrappy girl at a big agency in order to keep that. I have to keep making shit on my own. Mm. And then simultaneously, I'm going in for big projects and pitching HBO and like getting these meetings. And that's great. And like, I see myself directing TV this year and like, that's exciting. But, you know, it's like, I can't just wait for opportunities from those things. I have to keep making stuff on my own or I'll go insane. It's almost like you have to have an A-list approach, but an indie mindset. That's what I think is the only way to break through. I mm. mean, some people are really lucky and 
you know, break through in a very traditional way and their first film, you know, debuts at TIFF. But for many of us, that's not going to be like the path. And I, I think that is an essential uh, note right there that we can't just expect to get into this in a way that maybe 10 or 20 years ago, people were more likely to get into it because there's so much content out there. And there is so much, there's so much access at the same time that it feels like the access may be slipping away because we don't have that steady plan. Mm -hmm. So as, a, as you've gotten into this directing, as you've gotten yeah. into writing and producing, is, is there something that you've noticed that you're, you're foundationally prepared for? Hmm. That maybe your acting, that the stuff you were doing in your 20s allowed you to recognize so that now where you are feels more doable? I mean, one thing that would have never, I never really thought was going to be a factor when I started to write in the TV world. If you're going to sell a show, it ha you have to be the right person to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And I remembered first signing with the agency and having a space show. And it was a like, you know, high concept, grounded sci-fi, really cool material. And I went in there and people were like, oh yes, yeah, so you have a connection to NASA. And like, they weren't being facetious. Like it was very real. And I realized pretty soon okay, as an early career aspiring showrunner, you need to have your ideas that are in within your wheelhouse, your brand and how people perceive you based on your own ideas. And it's like, why are you the right creator? And why does this have to happen right now in our society? So some of the screenplay ideas that I know are more like highfalutin are going to happen for me later down the line and not stories that I'm actively trying to sell at this moment. So that how do you how do you distinguish between those those projects for you? Is there a, is there a feel like a like a, a sense that you get when you're um, getting excited about something? How do you know that it's the project that's also your voice in addition to being something other people would want to watch? I mean, when I'm going in to meet executives at these companies, you just see in their eyes sometimes when you're pitching, like when you're just like like loosely like talking about different concepts. Like either they light up or they're like, mm hmm, that sounds great. And like, I've just started to like pick up on that people are more interested in things that are closer to the DNA of the projects I've done before. Like I make one, you know, I make a psychological thriller, like my doomsday show. People think that genre, people think that means that that's horror. And now I'm getting being handed a million horror scripts to direct. And, mm. you know, if it's a 24 style, like, social commentary horror i'm excited and want to make those movies but i don't want to make a slasher flick yeah you know? well i i would probably rather watch a movie that you made under an a24 banner than a slasher yeah, exactly. flick although your slasher flick would be one of the most artistic slasher <laughs> flicks ever I like, produced i like to think that but it's just trying <laughs> to figure out what other people want of you and knowing they have mandates and it's not personal if they know that they are seeking a creator for x kind of show and you come in with something really outside of that it's not that they don't think your idea is cool it's that they don't have a place for it right now and they can't hand that off to their higher-ups so i try to think like how can I be of service? How can it be a symbiotic thing in these meetings and not just be me talking about all the things I aspire to do one day, which they're like, that's awesome that she's so ambitious, but she's not aware of where she fits in right now into the landscape. Mm, so you have to really know your, it's not about knowing your place, but knowing your role and where you yes. are now. Yes. Like when I'm looking at shows like Killing Eve or Yellow Jackets or something, and I know they're like, 
edgy, irreverent, female-led content, those are the places that I'm pitching myself as a director. Mm -hmm. And then you have to know what you do and don't want to do. When I was meeting with the big agencies, I'm one of the rare writers in LA that isn't interested in staffing. I'm sort of a filmmaker first. I'd rather go and make that movie than I would have staffing in somebody else's show, even though that's a dream job for most writers out here. And I was clear with agents when I was meeting with them. Like when I sat down with Gersh, they were like, oh, Sonia, you could be right to like write for a show like Riverdale. And I was like, I don't want to staff. And those weren't the right agents for me. Mm-hmm. And me was kind of like, okay, well, we have like big enough clients that if you want to like play Russian roulette and only go out to like create shows and like meet those things and you don't need to like pay your bills by staffing, like, great, we don't care. So it's like finding the right people that like, are in alignment with your goals and will support that, you know? That, that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, it, it it's, brings me to another question that I have for you because you're in the place where you're taking the meetings now and you are probably in a position where folks have funding. They're just looking for the people to attach to things they're doing. But I know that a lot of the work you've done has had to find funding. Oh, God. Yes. Yeah. So, so let's go into that a little bit. What is it like trying to... Um, self-fund, self-produce a piece that you know is good, but you need to convince other people has legs so that they're willing to invest? It's very challenging because we all see people who've done the grant like path, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that like people see a lot of the films that go to, you know, South by and Sundance and, in, and, you know, they're blindly submitting their feature or whatever. But if you haven't gone and done those Sundance Labs beforehand and have gotten in with those people, like those are the people that are really getting those grants, right? Like they have projects that are already like infiltrated into like the Sundance community long before they're programmed at the festival. So I very quickly, when I was like looking at who was getting access to what sort of, you know, money, I was like, okay that I'm not already in that club at that point. So I need to find another way. So I started looking, I'm very good at making proof of concept trailers for my projects long before I am able to go and maybe afford to make the whole project. And I found like little sizzles and trailers are the thing that I've gotten as tools that have gotten people to invest their own hard-earned money into. I find that so interesting and so important for people to hear that you had to prove that something was worthwhile by making it a film yes. as opposed to just sharing a script and saying, isn't this good? People don't want to read your scripts and it's just rough and it's hard to hear. But in order, even after I go on a killer meeting that's been set up through like Management 360, I still send them a, a visual pitch deck to sort of like tantalize them to get them to want to read my script. And I am a wrapped writer with credibility. Mm. So I can only imagine how hard it is for other people to get anyone to look at their material. So for me, the way that I got in the door is as a filmmaker, I was able to send trailers to my projects because people don't have the attention span to even watch a a 12 minute short film, but they'll watch a 90 second trailer. So the place I was putting money in was getting really good trailer editors to put together my stuff. Because if you can make it look like the, like a neon film or an A24 film or whatever you're going for, I found people will take notice. And I I just want to highlight this moment because I I think it's really essential for writers and uh, filmmakers who are trying to break in and uh, hearing you know, professionals who maybe broke in back in the 80s or 90s yeah. saying, don't bother with, a, don't, d- just just write, just make a script, mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll buy the script. 
don't don't make yourself a website. Don't, don't make yourself a, a pitch deck. Yeah. Don't do any other work outside the script. And I think that's just absolute nonsense. It is. It, I mean, it doesn't help anyone. It's an outdated, you know, piece of advice. And like for me, I think that you have to do the work, right? Like hone your voice, write that screenplay that means something to you. Because I can say that I'm really good at writing cold emails and getting my foot in the door and like impressing these execs and saying the right things because I read every variety and deadline article and they can bring up anything. And I can be like, oh, you worked with this person and I worked with that person. So they kind of perceive me as in the club. But at, when I finally get those big meetings and opportunities and somebody wants to read that script, that's where having something that you've put your life's blood into that is a rep representative of your talent is key. But no one will ask to read that if you're not doing all of these other things, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So like going and making projects and like, and people always talk about how much money it costs. And I found that you can convince people and I, and I absolutely believe in fair living wages. But if you're making a very short shoot and you're able to get... DPs, like for me, if they're off making all the money in commercial shoots, they want narrative work. So you can often get people that own an Alexa that, you know, that they're making a great living doing commercials to shoot your little proof of concept for a day or two. And then it looks great. And then you have something to get your foot in the door, you know? So how do you, how do you build that network for yourself? What, what's the best way to, you know, I think a lot of people, and it's totally understandable. I'm kind of the same way. I don't want to take my friendships, quote unquote, and, and do the ask of, hey, Neither do I. Yeah. Yes. So I'm very much with you. Like I am somebody who is too Canadian and diplomatic and I'm saying it's the wrong way to be able to crowdfund. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. I know so many people do it so well. Everyone gets a Kickstarter. Like I believe in it for other people, but I don't like asking for money. It's very hard for me. But I have learned that if I make an undeniable product and I think it could make somebody else money as well, I feel better at asking for us to collaborate by them putting in money than asking them to just give me money for something that feels like a vanity project. Mm -hmm. So part of it is how I see the project and how I can talk about it. And part of it is just like, I think going into film groups, as opposed to tapping into your own friend group to ask people to present why it's beneficial for them and you and finding, knowing that some people are going to poo poo it and not want to do your project. And will be like, Oh God, anything that's like, you know, copy and credit is like, you know, that's problematic. And like, there'll be people who won't want to do your little proof of concept, but if you can pitch it and be compelling to the right people, I found that often it's the people that already are killing it in the industry and are making good money are more willing to take the risks because other people that are having to do like, you know, hard labor and working all the time, really for them, it's not realistic for them to go and do a free project. Right. But there's a difference between asking a friend of yours who is a barista, who's also a good DP to come yeah. and do it versus somebody who's doing commercials to come. Yes, and do it. That's the thing. So I try not to ask the people that I know need to take that day you know, PAing or whatever on another project. So mm. I've learned also for meetings and agencies, sometimes aiming really high up works. Like I was delusional enough to write cold emails when I was at South by Southwest to the VP of acquisitions at Lionsgate and the head of the TV department at, at Paramount. And I got meetings with all of these top people that later my agents were like, if they had set me up on a general, I would have met a low level development exec. I never would have met presidents at these companies, but they all thought I had moxie and was like, and we were like, 
why not? Maybe I'll meet with this girl. Like she had the confidence to ask. Would you call yourself a risk taker or are you, are you taking calculated risks? How, how do you calculated, that? but I think that you're only going to piss somebody off or antagonize someone. If you're making an ask, I don't ask people to read my scripts. I don't ask people to read my film, to watch my films. All I'll write is a little note. It's under a paragraph long. I will reference somebody they know in common or a company that I've worked with. Like maybe it's like, I think that people look at cover letters and just want to see things they already recognize. And like, I will be like, Hey, I was a finalist for Austin film fest or Hey, I, my script got down to the semifinals for the Sundance lab or whatever. And I'll just mention places they know. And I'll say like, I'm meeting with this company. Would you also want to meet? Because people only want to meet with people they perceive to already be in the club, Mm -hmm. which is the weirdest and problematic, Mm -hmm. but it's worked with me. So once I get one meeting, if I read a hundred emails and I get one meeting, I then go to all the other places that didn't respond. And I'm like, Hey, I'm meeting with this production company. And then suddenly other people want to meet with me. And then I'll go back and be like, Hey, like I got the meeting at a 24 because I was like, Hey, I'm meeting with neon. And then people have like, a fear of missing out. And then they're like, who is this girl? So it's not like you're not breaking the gate down. You're, you're, you're calling to somebody on the other side of the gate. Hey, can you lift this up for me a little bit? And I'm just like, Hey, I'm meeting with these cool companies. I have a project that this festival would love to um, meet up. If you have the time, I'm not going to piss somebody off by doing that because I'm not being like, Hey, like, would you read my screenplay? And I'd love to pitch on your open writing assignment or whatever. Right. Like, I think that there's like a way to, overextend yourself where it's abrasive well you're preconditioning the relationship yes and then i will just update people on my like success or i mean sometimes it's not even as big as that sometimes it's just like hey i finished post-production on a short film here's a cool still from it but i will keep that up and just email people periodically to let them know what i'm doing and i found that eventually then when i make an ask six months later of read this thing or could I come in for another meeting? People are more receptive to that than if I like barrage them with my work in the beginning where they're like, I don't know this person. Why would I waste hours reading, you know, everything they've ever done? Yeah. I think, I think, I do think a lot of writers forget that um, there is, if you want a good read of your script, it takes just as long as it would take to watch the movie. You know, if even, even a, even a skim through is going to take an hour, hour and a half. So whatever they're reading has to be the most essential version of that. But you also have to know that what you're asking them for is not their time to read your script, but their time to know you as a fellow artist. Yes. And I don't go in there ever trying to sell a particular project. I'm selling myself as a creator that they Mm -hmm. should know. Right. And I think a lot of people are leading with like log lines for this one project. Agents don't sign individual projects. They're investing in a creator and their entire trajectory. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about like myself as like a queer webby winning like artist and and like that's what they're interested in. They're not interested in that I have this one cool hip project. Unless it won Nichols Fellowship, no one cares about that one project. They're more interested in what I have to say and how down the line, I could be somebody that they can make a lot of money off of. Well, let's, I, I think that is, that that brings me to my next question. And mm-hmm. I think this is a big one for, for some people because it is, it can be really difficult in this line of work, if yes. it's even a line, is um, how to find time to celebrate things. There, there was a, 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 a thing recently where someone said that, um, and this was on Twitter and never follow Twitter for, for useful information, except when you find useful information there. But uh, with um, one person said, 
don't celebrate until the cameras are rolling. And for you, I, I am, I'm watching your Instagram stories every day. It's, it feels like you're a person who celebrates every chance she gets. I do because you can't, if I were to wait to celebrate, like I know so many people that are almost sort of superstitious about this and they think like that they're not going to celebrate until they book that first series regular acting role. And I can tell you from close friends that have made that finally got that milestone they're still only excited for about six seconds. And then the reality of it sets in and the imposter syndrome and everything else. And you're setting yourself up for sort of a life that's joyless where you never feel like you ever actually arrived at a destination worth celebrating. So I've learned that I celebrate every audition, not even like callback. Like I celebrate every time somebody wants to sit down and talk to me to like have a conversation about the work. Like you have to find joy in the daily wins and just the daily celebration of making art. Or I don't know how I would make this something that I get up and do every day. Like I want to be doing this when I'm 97 years old. And if I found this like a sad struggle where I was constantly beating myself up, I don't know how I would be able to maintain the level of ambition and like daily grind that would keep me in the game, let alone keep me in California. You know, I, I, I feel that. Well, I, I sincerely hope that you are still working at the age of 97. Because <laughs> first off, that means we're getting 70 years of content from <laughs> Sonia O'Hara, but also like, like, let's just hope that it's, it's still popping then. Um, I am, I'm really excited. Uh, I know that you have a lot of projects coming up that you're not necessarily allowed to talk about, but what's coming down the line for you right now, Sonia? I have a movie that I just directed called Mid-Century that's a social commentary horror thriller that stars Stephen Lang of the Don't Breathe franchise and Bruce Dern, Academy Award nominee for Nebraska. I already have goosebumps. (laughs) And that will be coming out this summer um, and there'll be information in the world about it when press releases come out but I'm excited that that's my next thing and then I'm signed on to direct four other features that are various stages of development which is exciting and then my hour-long doomsday series will drop on streamers and on demand and VOD on March 1st so that's coming up soon Everybody mark your calendar. Mm-hmm. Although this is, uh, it, it's April that we're, we're, we're this is April. In which we're so gonna, so it's already out, guys. Everybody it's go watch it. World. It's out there in the world. Go, go find it. Time, go find it. And yeah. And then besides that, I have a script that I love that I'm finding the right time in the next year to go into the next stages because I've made many projects on my own, but this will be the first one now that I'm getting traction with other people's projects that I've directed, that I'll probably start going out to bigger cast and finally use the connections that I've had, you know, of being with a bigger agency to try to do the process with my own project. Because normally I'm going out and like writing letters of intent and using casting directors for movies that other people have written and that I'm directing, but it's cool when it's a project that you know, you care about that much. Yeah. So. Yeah. You get to put your, your individual stamp on it. Yes. Um, well, I, I actually, I have had such a inspiration watching you put your stamp on everything. Um, I, I am so excited for you where you are in your career right now, because I know when we both came to LA, however, many years ago, we Man. were both trying to get in as yes. we actors, were struggling. <laughs> struggle in the struggle, but, oh, but God. it's, yeah. you have made it through and um, I'm excited to see where you're going from here. Such a pleasure. And I really admire what you're doing. You're inspiring so many people with this. So, you know, 
it, it's beautiful to watch. Oh, well, thank you, Sonia. I, I appreciate that. And send me your script when it's ready. I, I'd love yeah, to read so. it. I would love that. Thank you. Right. Thanks, Sonia. Thanks so much for listening to Make Your Stuff. Tune in next week for my interview with recent Screen Actors Guild Award nominee Deshaun Terry from The Morning Show as we discuss, among other things, what it's really like to make theater in Los Angeles. If you enjoyed what you heard enough to maybe support the show, please click on the follow button, find us on Instagram and Twitter at Podcast, and become a patron at patreon.com slash makeyourstuff. I'm your host, Kyle F. Andrews. Our theme song is Keep On Dancing by Monday Hope. Until next time, keep making that stuff.